the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Bob Zadek Show, your home for insight and in-depth analysis. Listen live right here or join us at BobZadek.com. That's Z-A-D-E-K. BobZadek.com. The Bob Zadek Show. Ideas, not attitude. Information, not talking points. Hello, friends. I'm Bob Zadek, host of the country's longest-running libertarian broadcast, nationally streamed at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Sundays on the 860 a.m. app. The audio library in my Bob Zadek Show podcast provides 15 years of discussions of the important issues then and now. I promise you in-depth content on social, political, and economic issues that really matter. And always with the ideal guest, accessible and entertaining. Our rule, ideas, not attitude. Joe Cohn is the director of legislative policy at FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Joe is a 2004 graduate from the University of Pennsylvania Law School and the Fells Institute of Government Administration. Joe and I will discuss sexual harassment and discrimination on college campuses, the role of the federal government in general, and the United States Department of Education, in particular, in regulating the protection of victims of sexual harassment, as well as the violators of those rights. With specific attention to the due process rights of the accused or the absence of those rights. Trigger warning, everyone. When you hit what you hear during this next hour will not make you very happy. Thank you all for listening. And Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. And I want to thank your audience for tuning in and hearing us chat. And an hour from now, Joe, they will be in their heads thanking you for sharing your wisdom with them. So thanks all around. Now, Joe, tell us that you are the director of legislative and policy at FIRE, Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Former name, before you broadened your mandate, you were known as the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, but now it's broader. Tell us about the mission of FIRE, what you are what you hope to, and I will add, effectively accomplish, what you hope to accomplish in your work on college campuses? Well, you know, we were founded in 1999 to be a fair and effective advocate for the civil liberties of students and faculty at institutions of higher education. And since 1999, we've been on the front lines of those issues, advocacy on the ground at the schools themselves, advocacy in the media. And I was brought on in 2012 to add 
advocacy in the halls of government because we were seeing that government actors, and when I say that, I'm not talking about the public universities that are also government actors, but I'm talking about, you know, members of Congress or, you know, state legislators or the White House or federal agencies were starting to tell colleges and universities what they needed to do, and they weren't always telling them to do the right thing that complied with the constitutional rights. Now, you you mentioned that very important phrase and concept, civil liberties. When one thinks of civil liberties, one thinks of those rights, those liberties that all of us would like to think we hold and are protected against, and here comes the important part, against encroachment by government. But yet the adverse party, if you will, when you are talking about protecting civil liberties on college campuses, the adverse party, putting aside governmental institutions like state colleges and the like, is another private party. So tell us what you mean by civil liberties where the counterparty, the party who may be depriving one of civil liberties, is a private actor, is acting the same way a business might react. One does not think about protecting civil liberties from encroachment by Walmart. So why colleges and universities? Well, let me you know unpack that a little bit. With respect to the public institutions of higher education, they themselves and you know the their employees are government actors so when a university expels someone for protected speech or punishes them without due process under another charge it is government action that is implicating the deprival of the civil liberties now we've seen a trend on college campuses over the last 6 or 7 years uh roughly of more campaigns for censorship being led by fellow students. And, you know, that's a little bit of a depressing thought when historically the students themselves had been the leaders in fighting for free speech and they have by and large embraced uh, a new tactic of appealing to administrators to silence their adversaries. So there is an element of what you're describing in terms of in some instances, having fellow students, private actors as the adversary. So that's you know one thing I would I, I, I want to start with. But another kind of related context here is that we also do our advocacy at private institutions of higher education who are not government actors, and there the courts have for years protected concepts like academic freedom and free speech, not on the basis of the constitutional protections that are correlated with those concepts, but instead uh, with respect to contract law. So if you apply to go to school at Harvard, a private institution, and Harvard promises you when you apply, you'll have free speech rights, but they don't live up to those promises, the courts have been willing to say they've breached their contract with you and enforce those rights in that way. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. I felt... When I first started learning about that, that FIRE and other institutions, but FIRE clearly led the charge, came up with a theory that I often wondered about how you 
what cause of action would one have if you felt that the a, a private university think it could be a private business, think Walmart, a private institution which can basically do what it wants is depriving you of rights. They're allowed to do that. And the concept of using breach of contract, I don't know if you if FIRE was the organization that thought through and developed that body of reasoning and that body of law, but it certainly was brilliant in my opinion, and it gave you a a perfect tool to use where your adverse party is a private college rather than uh, a public uh, that is a state-owned university or college. Okay, so I'm sorry. Well, go I ahead, was going to say I'd love to take credit for that tactic, but it predated fires. Uh, existence. We, you know, we've utilized those cases uh, and been some of the more frequent advocates, uh, at least in the public sphere, making those arguments, you know, since our founding. Uh, but we weren't the ones who came up with the idea. Now, the story, I will start our story today so the audience can follow our discussion. I'd like to, we can start in many, there are many different starting points. Uh, I think we'll start with something which civil libertarians, libertarians in general, perhaps conservatives, will all know as the Dear Colleague Letter. Now, just to set the stage, I'm going to go back a tiny bit and just mention that way back in 1972, uh, a an important part of fe- an important federal statute was enacted to basically uh, protect uh, rights of various subgroups against encroachment. And in- included in that statute was a section called Title IX, which dealt with uh, protection of those who are abused by dint of their sexual orientation. So we start there with a well-meaning, probably at the time well-drafted bit of legislation and Title IX, which was basically uh, the first real activity under Title IX was it, it caused colleges and universities to rethink how they allocated economic resources between men's athletics activities and women's athletic activities. And when most of the attention was going to men's activities, that was felt unfair to women athletes, probably made, I'm sure there was a good point to be made. And that was the first center of gravity. But then we go to fast forward, Joe, to something which I referred to a second ago called the Dear Colleague Letter. Now, I will just tee up the issue as if uh, just on a very basic level, the Dear Colleague Letter was nothing other than a letter from a bureaucrat to some college administrators. So um, I I said that intentionally benign uh, characterization so you can show how it was far more than simply a bureaucratic letter, which, by the way, has no legal significance. I should mention that, but you will expand upon that. Why this letter, which is a letter, not a statute, not a subpoena, it's a letter, 
fake email from a bureaucrat to a bunch of college administrators. That starts us on today's topic. Set the stage for that letter, if you would, Joe. Sure. Well, Bob, you know, I, I appreciate you kicking us off with a good Title IX origin story. Um, so, you know, to start here, I want the audience to, for a moment, consider the operative kind of language of Title IX, which was no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Accept that, and then the the the, the language goes on. Um, but uh, the key there was that you're looking at the late 70s when courts started tackling the question of whether or not uh, a school is living up to that promise to eliminate discrimination if it's allowing their campuses to be permeated with sex-based harassment, uh, whether it's faculty members harassing students or students harassing each other. And the courts over a number of years uh, conclude that a school can't be uh, deliberately indifferent, which is a legal phrase of art we might talk about a little bit more later on in this conversation, to known instances of sex-based harassment between students, and they go on to carefully craft definitions of standards for when things cross the line. And the theory there was a you know a smart one, um, which is you know, and you can think about it you know this way: if there really is a tremendous amount of sexual harassment, and, on, and under that umbrella, I'm going to include sexual violence because the courts have said that sexual violence is a form of harassment as well and just do nothing about it again and again and again, you can see how uh, female students would feel less comfortable going to school. And that's really, you know, kind of the main aim of Title IX is to make sure that school is a universities and K-12 schools are environments where students can learn free of this sex-based discrimination. So that's kind of the overarching legal framework that you're looking at is, Courts are, you know, have told schools you have an obligation to address, you know, you know, complaints. Um, so here you fast forward to 2011, and you have the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights. So the acronym there is either ED if you're talking about the Department of Education as a whole, or one of its sub offices, um, you know, the Office for Civil Rights (OCR), sending this dear colleague letter that you introduced, Bob, which is, you know, an informal letter telling all of the schools that they regulate its views on what's required under Title IX. Now, the thing to keep in mind is the structure of Title IX says you're not eligible for federal funds if you have, you know, this sex-based discrimination on campuses. So that's the penalty for violating Title IX is you could lose all of your federal funds. So when the Department of Education which is the agency chiefly responsible for figuring out if there are violations, says, here's how we will measure whether you're in compliance, even if it's not a binding document like a court case or a law or statute. If you're a general counsel representing an institution and you ignore that warning of this is what we will be looking at when deciding whether or not we're going to take action against you, you'd be committing malpractice. So that's what you have. You have a letter to every school saying, if you don't do this, 
we might go after you for all of your federal dollars. And of I course- just want to jump in, if I can, yeah. do very quickly, Joe, um, to remind the audience that Joe mentioned the Department of Education and then mentioned they decide who gets federal funding. For the most part, the very purpose of the Department of Education is to decide who gets the money. They are nothing other than a disbursement office with the the teeth being that they hold back the money. They do not have a SWAT team associated with the Department of Education. They do not have a police force, but they have the dollars. So notice in the big picture, the federal government, on the one hand, accumulates a lot of money, federal income tax, now gets the money and it uses the money as a source of power, not statute itself, not police power, not criminal law. It uses money, which it has collected through taxing states and localities in the, or the people in the first instance. It accumulates the money. The money gives them the power. And then the power is then used to coerce private colleges who are not per se subject to federal regulation. They're private colleges. So in general, not subject to regulation. And, but they all do need the money. So the money is the hook that gives the federal government the power. I just wanted to mention that dynamic, Joe, because yeah, it's so important in so much of what I discuss. There's two forms of jurisdiction here for the federal government. Uh, the primary one is the one that we've just been discussing is the broader one. It's the spending clause. If you want access to these dollars, here are the conditions. Condition one, you're not going to have you know, forms of prohibited unlawful discrimination on campus. Now, Title IX deals with sex-based discrimination, but there are other titles. Uh, Title VI deals with race, national origin, et cetera. You have you know, the Anti-Rehabilitation Act, and you have uh, you know, the Americans with Disabilities Act, you know, protecting people from discrimination on the basis of, of other disabilities. And it's a way for the federal government to tell you know, institutions that you're not going to allow discrimination to permeate uh, on your campuses. And that kind of mirrors the framework of the Civil Rights Act that was trying to deal with those issues with respect to, you know, contexts like employment, where, you know, the percentage of people who work for governments versus working for private actors are low, and the need to get rid of discrimination in employment led Congress down the path of relying largely on that spending on, on, on anti-discrimination, sorry, equal protection justifications, which is where you have the justification, you know, at, at the public institutions. So you have two things going on at public institutions. You're talking about an anti-discrimination rationale to give the jurisdiction. And at private institutions, you're talking about spending, you know, jurisdiction. Of course, public institutions have both. So now we have the dear colleague letter where, the Department of Education says, in case you're interested, colleges and universities, in case you're curious, when we dispense financial goodies, we care about this stuff. Well, so that's akin to the choice, your money or your life, when a gun is pointed at your head in an alleyway. Yes, you have a choice, but you kind of tend towards one answer rather than the other. So now what flowed from something as unenforceable per se as a 
Dear Colleague letter. Well, the Dear Colleague letter in 2011, the April 4th, 2011 Dear Colleague letter was pretty interesting because it was trying to shed a light on what the government viewed at that time as a lack of sufficient attention towards uh, the problem of sexual harassment on college campuses. But one of the things that it ordered institutions to do was to use the lowest standard of evidence when deciding an allegation against you know, a student and deciding in an expulsion or suspension hearing uh, whether or not uh, the student was going to be punished. So whereas for many years, the norm across the country had been in campus disciplinary procedures to use an intermediate or a mid-level standard, which is called the clear and convincing evidence standard, um, which I'll break down the different standard choices in a moment. Uh, the Department of Education orders schools to use instead the preponderance of the evidence standard. So to break this out so that the audience can kind of think this through, in a criminal proceeding, in order to be found guilty, you need to be found responsible beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, which is, you know, that we're pretty darn certain that you did it. And it's unreasonable to think that you didn't do it. The next standard down, which is still a high one, but not nearly as high as clear and convincing, which, you know, there isn't a numerical score you can give. But if, you know, just thinking about it in general terms, it's like being 70 percent sure, you know, this really probably happened. Um, and then the next is preponderance. Now, preponderance of the evidence standard is what's used in a civil lawsuit if you sue someone else in a court. And it says the jury is asked, who do you believe more? 50.01%. No matter how close a call it is, if you think one side is right, that's the one you, you rule with. Um, and then the only other standard below that is, is there any substantial evidence? Show me anything that supports this particular point of view, which is near defer, near complete deference to you know the entity that's making the decision. So, the Department of Education reasons in this letter they say, if you were to sue someone in court for a violation of your civil rights, the court would decide it using that fifty point oh one percent preponderance standard. So we think it's the only standard that is appropriate to use in these disciplinary proceedings. And of course, there are a lot of real consequences to that and real flaws to that logic. For example, and I think one of the primary flaws here is that when you do have a lawsuit in court and a jury is asked to make the decision uh, at the end, it's after a process that has significant rules and protections. Both sides have the right to have lawyers. Well, that doesn't exist on college campuses by and large. There's discovery. So you get to you know find out what the other sides know and get access to documents. That doesn't exist in the same way on college campuses. There's rights to cross-examination. That's not there. There's a judge who knows what the heck they're doing and has been legally trained. Uh, well, let's assume that the judge knows what they're doing. Uh, but, uh, but that's not there either. So at the end of a court case, when you ask 50.01% to a jury, who do you believe more, there are these other guardrails in place. They're just not there on campus. So that was the implication, a clear signal to schools. You know. Now, just wanted to jump in one, one tiny bit. One, one has to observe that it's one thing for the Department of Education to say appropriately, okay, college campuses, you better not have out-of-control sexual harassment or else it's going to cost you. Fair enough. But the dear, guy, the dear colleague letter not only said that, but it said, and in reaching that goal of no sexual harassment, here's the way you must reach the goal. 
It doesn't say any way you want to reach the goal, so long as it's lawful, is okay with us. But they said, we don't trust you even to pick the right process. So it is a statement that the colleges are incapable of figuring out how to achieve the desired result. And the other observation is you you drew this important parallel in explaining the Dear Colleague letter. Do we use a civil litigation standard or a criminal litigation standard? In deciding which standard is proper, as you explained, um, using a, a trial standard lacks the guardrails. Of course, you're exactly right about that. That was an important point. But in addition, what occurred to me was, well, let's see. In a civil litigation, what's often at stake is money. And money is money. You have more, you have less. In a criminal trial, what's at stake is your liberty. It's There's much more at stake than just dollars and cents. Now, if you consider the adverse consequences that I think Joe will probably get into of a bad finding that you, often a male, are guilty of sexual harassment, the consequences are profound on the rest of the life of that convicted, although it's not a criminal trial, male usually. And isn't one, I would ask the audience to think, is the effect of the adverse result on the accused more akin to the dramatic effect of a criminal conviction or more akin to the effect of a civil lawsuit in which you lost? And I think it's inescapable to me. It's much more like a criminal trial, and therefore that should be the standard. Sorry, well, Joe, I just wanted no, to... No, I mean, you know, I'm glad you said all, all of that. I mean, I, I largely agree. Courts have looked at the context of what's at stake uh, in civil proceedings all of the time and been able to make distinctions between things where you could just settle. You know, you can just pay your way out of it if you want, you know, and uh, you can't settle uh, a claim that you're accused of engaged in sexual harassment, which also includes sexual violence. So you're also talking allegations, regardless of what label they want to apply to it in the in their code of conduct. You're talking about allegations of rape. Um, you know, you can't just settle that you know, to, to, to move on. Um, and the consequences of getting expelled from school are significant and lifelong, you know, more on par with, you know, getting, you know, uh, removed in a deportation proceeding or losing all of your, you know, benefits. You know, if you rely on, you know, public benefits to, you know, to, to survive or more akin to, you know, losing your housing and an eviction than, you know, being sued, by someone else for a car accident or who you'll figure out who has to pay. So that's why we think that the middle standard uh, of clear and convincing is more appropriate. But one other point that I think is really worth noting, you know, which I think should be in the back of people's minds as they listen to this conversation, which is, you know, it's true that at the end of a campus proceeding, the dean isn't going to sentence an accused student to 20 years in jail. That's true. But most people don't realize that the statements that students make in campus proceedings are often admissible against them in later criminal trials. And, you know, there's a movement to remove statutes of limitations or extend them decades uh, for sex-based criminal acts. So you have 18 and 19-year-olds being asked to defend themselves without lawyers who are allowed to actively participate in proceedings where they're being asked about the factual specific details of events 
that could be the factual predicate for convictions which across the country have penalties ranging from life in prison uh, on the high end to only one state that has a maximum penalty of less than 10 years, meaning that in 49 states, you can be sent away for more than 10 years if they find you guilty of the same fact pattern that you're being asked to talk about on the record on in a college proceeding. So now we have so we have the dear colleague letter which sets in motion these more aggressive I'll call them prosecutions technically incorrect but 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 to most of our listeners they understand what I'm saying a pro, a, a prosecution like proceeding where we have a stu- typically a student but not exclusively a student who is accused of bad acts, sexual harassment, rape, something akin to rape, unwelcome contact, whatever the specifics are, there's an accusation. And then as a direct result of the Dear Colleague letter, tell us sort of what happens now universities who have a problem. They are required to make sure sexual harassment has been, they are taking steps to limit the degree of sexual harassment and the frequency. They're required to do that. They're told how they must do it by the dear colleague letter. So there's a very natural consequence of this unenforceable, not have the weight of a statute or a law letter. What are the, what were the consequences before we had round two? which we'll get to in a moment. Yeah, I mean, the consequences were pretty uh, stark on college campuses, which is that schools tripped over themselves to demonstrate to the federal government that they were really going to be tough on sexual harassment. And they looked at their you know, policies and they brought them right in line with the what the department was saying. You know, another provision, the department said that, uh, that schools shouldn't allow the students who are parties to these cases to cross-examine each other. Now, I don't find that particularly problematic if you require them to do a meaningful cross-examination in another way. But if you're not require them to schools to allow the students to have representation and they're told they can't conduct a cross-examination if they're on their own, uh, that had profound consequences too. So during this era, uh, of the dear, I'm going to call it the dear colleague letter era. Uh, schools were undermining due process left and right in these campus sex assault proceedings. And for just a real quick moment, I want to point out that the the picture was not always and is still not rosy in other kinds of allegations that schools are adjudicating. They adjudicate other serious things too, from fistfights to drugs in the dorms, et cetera. But this is the only context where the federal government was telling schools, you better provide fewer due process protections or your federal dollars might be at stake. And that was important because this show is about, in part, the relationship between the federal government, due process rights of students, and the dynamic of how that all works. Now, you mentioned something. I want to just remind the audience of something you just now have said. This wa- There was a clear, direct, powerful change in behavior by universities as a result of a letter which had no force of law whatsoever. In other words, 
Assuming the author of the letter or the department had decided this was a good idea to reduce due process rights, assuming the agency itself made that decision, what they could have done, they could have tried, drafted a regulation which does give it the force of law, more or less, and gone through an entire process under the Administrative Procedures Act, other federal statutes, where the process itself has rules and protections, if you will. There are hearings and public comment. So that's what a regulation looks like. A letter is unregulated. And what you have explained, Joe, is this regulation, this letter, a letter had perhaps even greater impact, but certainly no less impact than a regulation, except it bypassed all of the protections under the Administrative Procedures Act and other laws. That's right. So, and that's important for the audience to follow. And the department says, what's the big deal? We just wrote a letter. We're allowed to write letters. Yeah, but it's your money or your life kind of letter. That's not quote, just a letter. I've made that same argument that you're making in a number of different settings. And the Department of Education in that period was trying to have it both ways. Um, they were telling members of Congress who were grilling them on these points that uh, they recognize the difference between regulations and guidance. Regulations are binding as a matter of law. You have to follow it or they're, you know, or when the government tries to take an action, they will cite the violation of the regulation as what you're being measured against uh, to take its action. Whereas here they were saying, we're just telling schools our perspective on what we consider a violation, so what we'll choose to go after you on. And that did not impress then chairman of the Senate Health, Education, and Labor and Pensions Committee, uh, Lamar Alexander, who had himself been you know, the Secretary of Education, uh, had been a university president. He saw right through that immediately, as did a number of his colleagues. Which is, you know, he's, he was asking the head of OCR at the time, you know, under oath, so are you planning on going after schools that don't follow your, you know, interpretation, your advice? And, they, and you know, they matter-of-factly said, absolutely, they plan on going after, you know, people because they think that they think that that's what the law requires. And that was just not right. So uh, if you don't mind, you know, I think it might, you know, be helpful for the audience to kind of get a little bit of a fast forward into the next, you know, era here, um, because, you know, fire worked incredibly hard to uh, get the Department of Education to change its tune. We filed a lawsuit um, back in the final days of the Obama administration uh, over the Dear Colleague letter, and it was uh, eventually mooted out when uh, President Trump's Department of Education agreed with us, withdrew the letter voluntarily, and initiated the binding process of creating regulations that do have notice and comment, uh, you know, procedures to make them legally binding. So uh, that that happened, uh, started in 2017 when the when the Dear colleague letter was rescinded. The, then they spent a couple of years trying to figure out what a binding regulation should look, look like and writing it, and uh, and then completed that in uh, twenty twenty. Now, one observation: um, 
with respect to Fire's great work in attacking a letter. And by the way, the uh, it's rather strange to talk about rescinding a letter. I, I don't even know what that means, to rescind a letter. A letter is not rescindable. It's just a letter. But that shows how the letter was really a regulation dressed up as a letter. You don't have to rescind a letter. You have to rescind a regulation. Okay, just an observation. So we get to the golden era when due process to, to a substantial degree is restored to campuses around the country, at least on paper and in fact. Now, one factoid, if you will, Joe, if you can help the audience, all of this started because of the perception about the rape culture. We remember that phrase. We don't hear it much anymore. There was a concern that on college campuses, there was rampant uh, sexual harassment, rape in the extreme, in extreme cases on college campuses. Now, tell us if you can, what the facts were. Was there a rape epidemic on college campuses around the time of the letter? Did the letter have any effect upon that? And what about after the letter was rescinded? Was there, now we're, we're back in the Trump, Betsy DeVos era, is there on the ground, what was going on in terms of statistics during the letter era and the post-letter era after FIRE was able to encourage Betsy DeVos and the Department of Education to rescind the letter? Well, it, those are all very interesting you know, questions. Uh, you know, there were studies that claimed as many as one in five and then later as many as one in four students enrolled in institutions of higher education across the country would be subject to some form of sexual harassment uh, and misconduct before they had graduated. Now, of course, that rolls everything together from rape uh, into, you know, uh, into uh, verbal harassment, but even more broadly than that, the terms defined in those studies were so broad um, that they could even include, you know, someone trying to attempt a good night kiss after a first date, um, you know. And it was based on those numbers that you see advocates claiming that it's particularly rampant on college campuses. Now, the Department of Justice, using much narrower definitions, found that the incidents and rates of sexual violence on college campuses were actually a bit lower uh, in on college campuses than they were with women of similar demographics off of campus. And it was well under 2%. Now, I'm not a social scientist, um, so I'm not going to weigh in on uh, trying to figure out whose methodology was more sound uh, than the other. But what I will say is that to some degree, it's a dog and pony show on the side because whether it's frequent or it's rare, I would hope that our policies would be focused on effectively addressing instances when they are brought to the school's attention, but without cutting corners and sacrificing due process. For, so I want every student who feels like they're a victim of sexual misconduct to know how to report it and how to get resources, even at two in the morning on Saturday, if that's when it happens, 
and I want the school to have adequate resources to respond to it properly. But then I don't want to have a rush to judgment on the facts either because you don't have to be put in this false dichotomy of choosing whether you support complainants or support accused students. You can support them both. And you should. Sure. Now we go. So we have the Betsy DeVos, Donald Trump presidency era, um, which adopts a more due process, protective um, guidance, if you will, not but guidance, but regulations. The regulations themselves are protective of due process without, of course, compromising in any way the rights of the victim. There's no suggestion the rights of the victim to be protected were diminished. They were not. All that happened was the rights of the accused caught up to civil society. So to bring us to the current, so now Biden is elected, Trump and Betsy DeVos are out, and now we are the current, which is what our audience is must be made aware of today. So in this continuing saga, the next act is now we have the Biden administration and now uh, they inherit a situation where there are due process protections for the accused. No suggestion that the victim is more at risk or that women are more at risk. I've seen nothing that suggests that's the concern. So things seem to be balanced. And I'm not asserting a statistical comment, just what I've observed from reading. Things seem to be quiet and in balance. Bad guys and and women are being punished and everybody is protected. So now we have the Biden administration and now we have current events. So where are we today and how does fire view the current circumstances sure. and and what are you doing if, to the extent that you're unhappy with them? Bob, I agree with you on your conclusions that the Trump era rules were fair and did set the right balance. I, we strongly supported them for that reason. But when they were issued, you saw people like Catherine Lehman, who was the head of the Office for Civil Rights during the uh, second uh half of the Obama administration, and then she was nominated to retake the helm of OCR under Biden, she immediately tweeted that the new regulations take us back to the bad old days where women could be raped with impunity. So there was the allegation that due process itself undermined, you know, fundamental, you know, abilities for, for complainants to come forward. I mean, I wholesale reject that argument, and I don't think they have strong evidence to support it. But it's on that basis that the depart that, that President Biden on the campaign trail promised that he would make short order of the regulations and rescind them. And he uh through Catherine Lehman leading OCR again, uh started the process by rescinding them uh earlier this summer and offering new proposed regulations which uh strongly roll back a number of the protections that were put in place during the Trump era. So for example, um, you no longer have the right to have a live hearing to contest the charges. Now, when you lose a live hearing and you go to what's called an investigator model, that's one where, one, where an investigator interviews both parties or whoever else they want. They might turn over a summary of their conclusions to the other side and say, let me know if you think I got anything wrong. 
you lose the ability to cross-examine people in real time, see how they, you know, see how they actually answered things. Because an investigator could miss the significance of a detail because they didn't live through it, even if they're trying to do it, you know, with integrity. Um, so you lose the ability to cross-examine when you lose the right to a live hearing. Um, and the Trump administration regulations that we fought for gave students the right to see all of the evidence that was in the institution's possession, not just the evidence that they planned on using. You know, the distinction being that if you only need to turn over the evidence you plan on using, you can conceal exculpatory evidence because it doesn't help the school make its own case. Well, they re- and I should mention just to maybe re- remind the audience that in a criminal trial, it is prosecutorial misconduct for the prosecutor who is seeking a conviction to withhold exculpatory evidence. Trials are set aside and convictions are reversed if that ever happens. So in our system of of jurisprudence, with with for the prosecutor to withhold evidence is to use non-legal words a very big deal and as joe just explained it's de rigueur it's sop standard operating procedure in these quasi criminal proceedings done on college campuses right. sorry joe no i don't know about i think it underscores how something as simple as a change to turn over all the evidence to turn over the evidence you plan on using has real consequences on the ground and that's part of the proposal um, and so the, your audience understands what happens is they go when, once a regulation is offered, which has happened this time because they learned their lesson from last time and didn't go the direction of guidance. They're trying to do new binding regulations to replace the Trump era ones. Um, they offered to public comment. And, you know, and we got a chance to, to point out all of the flaws that we saw in it. And our comment turned out to be 89 pages worth of mostly flaws, a couple things that we thought they did OK. At. Um, but um, but. Uh, you know, we will have to wait several months until they release a final version. But we think that, you know, we're hopeful that on things like that, they'll say, yeah, we can fix that problem. But we're not optimistic that they'll fix the big picture ones. Give us the right to have a live hearing itself. It's so crucial. Make sure that cross-examination is meaningful. They also, in addition to allowing it to be done with, uh, with investigations, Green light schools using what's called a single investigator, where it's only one person serves all of the roles, investigator, judge, and jury. Uh, and, you know, that the flaws of that are so obvious and numerous courts have weighed in on how inappropriate that is and unconstitutional that is because of how easily it injects someone's you know, bias, whether conscious or subconscious, into the process. So it's long and short of it is – that there were so many ways that the proposed regulations undermine fundamental fairness that it was uh, a bit alarming because the standard really needs to be how do we do right by all of the people who are involved. And what's so interesting in all of this is that we always have learned in any discussion on what how civil society should operate we mention it a lot in free speech conversations that there's no need to protect the rights of people who are speaking about with banality. It's the rights of the most disfavored speech 
that has to be protected. That's where we test whether we are sincere about free speech rights. And here it is the rights of the accused. There's not a very strong lobby, more than there used to be, about accused people, about convicts, about defendants in criminal law cases. There's a lot more than there used to be with the Innocence Project and the like. But in general, there are classes in our society which are held in disfavor. That's one thing, but denied the rights that they are still entitled to. They haven't surrendered those rights. And you are pointing out that there's not much of a lobby for it's usually males, not always, but numerically much more males and females, that males accused of sexual harassment don't have a very strong lobby in their favor. And fire, while that is not your constituency, your constituency is the Constitution and the principles that regulate our country. But you are fighting a battle where absent the work of fire, there's nobody to do it. You're, you're the, the last line of defense just to preserve the due process rights that all of us are entitled to on college campuses. Now, we only have a minute or two left uh, before we do our closing. Uh, what has, how active, this is a loaded question, of course, has FIRE been in, in guiding or in trying to guide the Biden Department of Education to get to the right place? Well, you know, we have engaged them in a number of ways. Immediately after the election, you know, we have a history for each after each presidential election of writing a letter to the president uh, on their inauguration day, introducing ourselves and highlighting some issues we want to bring to their attention. You can rest assured that for, uh, that you know overbroad sexual harassment definitions, you know that threatened free speech were amongst the issues that we raised, as well as the rights of the accused. We met with. Uh, officials in the Department of Education in the weeks that follow before a proposed regulation was offered to give some top level kind of general thoughts on why we think the current rules at that time, the 2022 rules made made sense uh, to talk to them about some of their criticisms of them. And then, of course, we uh, submitted our formal comment, which, as I said, was a really in detail uh, piece going into a deep dive. And of course, we do a lot of public speaking and and articles and op-eds as well to make the case. I, I do want to say, because I would be remiss to say, there are others who are doing good work here. We're really proud of the, of, of, of the leadership we've, we've played, uh, the extent of our work. But a number of Harvard law professors, for example, wrote instrumental pieces defending you know, due process rights, as did a number of faculty members at the University of Pennsylvania. Lara Bazelon, the, uh, the professor who leads the Racial Justice Clinic at uh, University of California, um, uh, 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 I think Hastings, um, you know, has just been instrumental here. As have a bunch of parents who formed organizations like Face Families Advocating for Campus Equality. For, you know, parents who have had their families torn apart because of this, and and other organizations as well, of course. But uh, we've worked very hard, you know, to make sure that the the due process arguments aren't left by the wayside. We've been speaking with Joe Cohn. Joe is the director of FIRE's legislative and policy department. FIRE is the foundation for individual rights. Uh, uh, 
individual, I always am tempted to say in education, sorry about that, but that's the old name. Uh, you can support FIRE at, I believe, Joe, it is uh, thefire.org. And Joe, how does our friends out there follow your writing? Where can they most easily follow what you're up to these days? Well, uh, going to our website is the best place, www.thefire.org. But I'm also on Twitter. Joe at fire is my uh, is my Twitter handle. And uh, I look forward to hearing from and engaging uh, with those of you tuning in. Um, thank you so much, Bob, for having me. It's been a delight. Joe, thank you so much for the work of your for your work yourself and for the work of your organization. I love you guys and I love what you are doing. Thank you so much and sincerely keep up the good work and hope a lot of my friends out there will find their way to support you. Thank you so much and thank you to my friends for giving us an hour of your time. I hope you have found it to be worthwhile. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.